Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Hello, everybody. Today is Thursday, October 17th. And we have another great edition of the Muni Lowdown today. We've got Maria Monte here in New York. We'll just be discussing her story on the University of Oklahoma's uh, main campus of a troubled student housing facility. Uh, Kaylin Devitt in Chicago, talking about charter schools in California. And finally, head of research, municipal research, sorry, Greg Clark on his analyst snapshot on the National Law Enforcement Museum. Welcome everybody. Let's start with you, Maria. How are you doing today? I'm great, Young. Thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. So let me give our listeners a brief background. It's your story is about bondholders of a troubled student housing facility on the University of Oklahoma's main campus, they who have gone restricted to advance workout negotiations with management. Now, tell us about this uh, troubled student housing project here. What is exactly going on? In March 2017, about $250 million in debt was sold to finance this luxury student housing development on the university's campus. And subscribers, if you go back into our archives, actually Greg Clark published a research opinion, a research piece on this at the time of issuance. <laughs> at the time of issuance. The facility is truly a luxury building. Amenities include rehearsal space, theater, and performance venues, uh, fast casual dining options, and retail stores. There was a Lululemon pop-up shop and a blow-dry bar, for example. Ooh. Very fancy. And it's not quite lived up to expectations as far did as... I, did, I ex- did I express skepticism about this when I wrote my report? Muted. All right, muted. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and so it's not quite lived up to expectations. It opened in 2018, but only saw about 30% occupancy then. And those numbers haven't much improved in the second year. Last year, they reduced rent, and they were working with the university on marketing to help generate interest, but it didn't help. And I remember back then, the university was on bondholder calls, and they were indicating support for the project. And they indicated that they wanted it to succeed. But a lot's happened since then. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, a little lemon pop-up shop, <laughs> blow dry hair, blow it's dry It's what the kids bar. want yeah, and need. I guess so. All right, so tell us what's the status of the relationship with the university now? When the deal was financed, it included a $20 million payment to the university from bond proceeds, an advanced ground lease payment. And although it was not formally noted in the official statement, there was an understanding that the university would lease out at least some of the commercial and parking space, helping supplement the project's rental income. And in the July, the university announced it would not renew the majority of its commercial space leases. And so you have a project that's experiencing low occupancy already. The university was expected to be a stable tenant, backs out. And the university says it was well within its rights to do so and that it was not financially wise for them to continue leasing out the space. And so what this means for the bondholders is that things on the project went from bad to worse earlier this summer. So let's talk about the bondholders. How are they reacting to this? 
UMB, who's the trustee on the debt, has made the fight public, and they're saying the university has a moral obligation and failure to appropriate lease payments could compromise the university's own debt as well as the state of Oklahoma's debt uh, reputationally. And so it's important to note that the university is not an issuer or an obligor for the debt for the Cross Village property. My reading of it is that the OS says the university is not responsible for the debt. It's also my take that the upfront $20 million payment is what's upsetting to bondholders and the developers. The developer also feels like it was fulfilling a need for, the pro- for a project that the university wanted to pursue. The developer says that they built the property that the University of Oklahoma wanted. And despite that, their recourses are fairly limited, except for maybe trying to recoup a portion of that $20 million advanced ground lease payment. People, and people are saying that that was an unusual structure for, that, for this type of project. Bondholders are dependent on the university, and so is the developer. And sources have suggested that the university is open to mediation, but they're also fairly confident in their position that they've fulfilled their obligation to the property. Bondholders have gone restricted, which means that they maintain their positions for additional access to confidential information to help facilitate a workout. But the, fi- the fight has made, been made public. The developer filed an open records request with the university in advance of legal action, and it's made public statements about the situation. They're trying to make this about headline risk, and it's perceived that they don't have many other options. So just to recap, the university is not on the hook for the debt, correct? That's my understanding of the official statement. Okay. Well, thank you, Maria, for um, the story and your uh, time today. Thank you. All right. Let's move on to Chicago. Caitlin Devitt, how are you doing out there? I'm pretty good. How are you in New York? We're okay. And uh, we don't have time today, but um, I understand you're in Chicago and there's a teacher strike that we are also discussing on DebtWire.com. That's right. There's a teacher strike. You see on most of the corners, clusters of red shirt-wearing teachers with picket signs, and uh, they're they're fighting with this with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. So we'll see. Fingers crossed, it's resolved soon. But we'll see how negotiations go. Yeah, I hope uh, they come to resolution soon. And I know it's affecting you personally because uh, you're home because because of that. <laughs> That's right. So let's talk about your story. You discuss how in California their charter schools are probably facing a tougher time winning renewals and expanding under a pair of new regulations that were signed to law earlier this month by Governor Gavin Newsom. So let's talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about how in California, which is the state with the most amount of charter schools in the country, what's changed there overall for the sector? Well, it's a pretty significant overhaul of the entire sector. The, as you say, California has the most modern charter schools. They also have some of the oldest laws around. And this is probably the most significant overhaul, in, I would say, 20 years or more of the laws that govern it, govern the sector. It's driven by Assembly Bill 1505. There's another smaller one, but the big the one carry the big impact is AB 1505, and some have described it to me as a near catastrophic setback to the to the California charter school sector. The big thing with the law is it gives K-12 districts more power to deny um, charter schools that are looking for for charters. So, you know, for new charters, it gives them the ability to measure the fiscal impact that'll have on the district what in, as they consider whether or not to grant that charter. And 
you know, they have, will have a pretty good argument, and some charter school advocates say that it's an unfairly stacked argument, but they'll have a pretty good argument that a lot of times that fiscal impact hurts the district. So it allows them to deny it on those grounds, and that's brand new. And that's, won't, they will not be able to consider that, though, with renewing charters. However, they will be allowed to consider it when they're talking about renewing charters that want to expand. So new charter schools or expanding charter schools will both be probably cramped by this new law. And then the other thing it does is it really shuts off the appeals process. It used to be when a K-12 district were denied a charter, they were allowed to appeal at the county and the state level. This new bill um, retains the county board level, but really chops down the state level appeal unless the charter can kind of prove that the district was somehow absurd. I, that's literally one of the criteria absurd in its decision to deny the charter. Interesting word. I'm sure that's a way, that's a way to define absurd. Um, <laughs> another question I have for you is, so let's talk about Assembly Bill 1505. And from what your article stated, the final version was not the original, correct? Can you expand upon that? Sure. It was it was really um, amended from the beginning, and, and it caused this interesting sort of split um, for the the state's main charity lobbyist is is California Charter Schools Association. They ended up coming on board, and they stood next to the governor as he signed it because what they said was, you know, as they talked with the governor's office, that there was these really big changes to the bill, so they felt that it was. It retained enough of what they wanted that they came over to his side. Other charter advocates um, that I talked to, including Eric Premack, who's the head of a charter school development center, which is a smaller lobbyist, they are, you know, he's the one who said it would be a near catastrophic setback. And so there's a lot of charter advocates who are, who remain against it. So it kind of caused this split. The main thing is, is that the original bill would have allowed districts to measure financial impacts when considering renewing all charters. So as I just said, now they can only do new ones and expanding ones. This would allow them to consider financial impact when renewing existing charters. And also it would have eliminated all avenues of appeal. So both that county and that state level uh, appeal would have been, once the K-12 district denied it, that would have been it. Those are pretty significant changes from the original, more you know, draconian version. Right. That sounds very different. Uh, one last question before I uh, sign off with you, and most importantly to our listeners who are a lot of them are bondholders. What does it mean for them as a bondholder? I think that we're waiting to find out the California School Finance Authority, which acts as a conduit for most of the state's charter school bonds. I talked to them. They're sort of still digesting it. They're saying that they're expecting they're going to be hearing from muni bond participants, you know, underwriters and bond councils, sort of as they figure out their concerns with it. There's lots of, we've just talked about the highlights of the law. There's lots of other things like charter school teachers have to be credentialed. So I think you're going to start to see more notices on Emma. Uh, I think you're going to probably see issuance go down, but that's just speculation. And for charters, for holders that have uh, bonds of existing charter schools, again, they escaped the main wrath of the bill, so those that renewal process is probably not going to be as tough as it could have been. But you're going to see some of it being shut down. And also, there's other there's an AB 1507, which is another bill which does not it restricts charters to being located within the authorizing district. That's a shift. And so there's still there's still a lot of factors that are probably going to affect bondholders. It's still sort of too soon, but I think you're going to see you know more calls and more more notices popping up on Emma as, as the operators start to learn how to navigate the new 
landscape. All right. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for your story and your continued coverage. Uh, as a parent myself, on one hand, it's great to be home with the kids, but on the other hand, you want them in school to, to learn. So uh, hopefully the strike uh, uh, is very short, and um, good luck to you out there. Thanks again, Caitlin. Thank you. All right. Let's, I guess, say best for last. Head of Municipal Research, Greg Clark. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Young. And your always insightful analyst snapshot, which, uh, again, to our listeners, you can click on deadwire.com for his take. And this time, the, your subject of attention is the National Law Enforcement Museum. And this is something that uh, is a very interesting project. Exactly. Very interesting. Uh, despite what people have heard about Detroit and Puerto Rico, there are not a lot of muni bond issues that go into default, but there are some. And uh, even more extreme, once in a while, bond issue defaults very soon after it's issued. One of these is on bonds issued in January 2016 to build the National Law Enforcement Museum. In 2016, bond proceeds of about $100 million were used to build a 57,000 square foot museum on East Street Northwest in the District of Columbia, about a 10, 10 to 15 minute walk from the U.S. Capitol, National Mall, and various Smithsonian museums. Now, as most people know, the, the Smithsonian museums are immensely popular, Air and Space Museum, for instance, and free to attendees. So an obvious challenge to a museum that expected to charge $16 a head when it opened is the competition from uh, Smithsonian. If people go to D.C. for a few days, most people don't spend a week there, I don't think. Uh, your focus is on the Smithsonian and it's free and then, you know, that's normally about the time it takes you to see all the sites and do you want to spend $16 a head to go to a law enforcement museum? You figure that out for a family of four and well, you do the math. Uh, what's interesting is that the feasibility consultant, BDO USA, barely mentioned the Smithsonian facilities in its feasibility study. Instead, they cited places such as Madame Tussauds and the International Spy Museum as competitors for the Law Enforcement Museum. Well, that's a good point because besides the fact that the Smithsonian museums are free, they're also fairly large. It would take you a while to go through the the Air and Space Museum. So imagine that as well, compounded by several of them. So Yeah, you're, so, you're exactly right. Now let's talk about, another question I have for you is the financing team. What, what made them think that the Law Enforcement Museum would ultimately become successful? Well, the stated rationale was its location in a tourist area. That's undeniable. The presence of an already popular law enforcement memorial at the museum's proposed site and uh, the hope that police officers from other parts of the country would tour the museum when they visited the district. So again, bonds were issued in uh, January 16. The museum opened in mid-October of 18, and just about a year ago. And less than two months later, in early December of 18, museum officials said that operating results were materially short of projections at the time the bonds were issued. There were a little bit of detail on the bonds themselves. There were three series of bonds, two senior bonds, one subordinate. Uh, capitalized interest was provided for each bond issue through November 1st of 18, and the senior bonds also had debt service reserves funded from proceeds. 
I won't get overly technical, but this gave the uh, the bonds a little bit of cushion during uh, the construction period and shortly thereafter. But on January of January first of nineteen, the museum was unable to pay debt service on its bonds from its own revenues. Interest on senior bonds was paid from the remaining capitalized interest and the debt service reserve, and only partial payment was made on subordinate bonds. So in other words, again, once the museum ran out of monies they had set aside from bond proceeds, they couldn't pay bondholders. So in looking at your analyst snapshot, you said that the subordinate bonds were unusual in at least one big respect. What would that be? Well, those bonds, $25 million in subordinate bonds, were redeemed by a parallel series of corporate subordinate bonds, quote-unquote, which were purchased by EB-5 investors in conjunction with a company that specializes in this type of financing. In doing research for this report, it appears I found that EB-5 financing has been used at other times for muni bond issues, but this was the first time I encountered it. Would you mind expanding about what EB-5 means? Sure. Uh, The EB-5 stands for Employment-Based Fifth Preference Category. And this type of visa was created as part of the Immigration Act of 1990. The EB-5 program provides a method for non-U.S. citizens to become lawful permanent residents. And this is accomplished by their investing at least $500,000 to finance a business in the U.S. that will employ at least 10 American workers. The $500,000 investment increases to $900,000 as of November 21st of this year. So what's the latest news on the bonds? Well, defaults have continued, and year-to-date figures through August 31st of this year indicate that revenues are 42% short of budget. That's a pretty big gap. And an official stated on, a museum official stated on July 22nd that it could be several years before there will be enough money to pay for debt service. Let's talk about attendance at the museum. How far is it off? Once you hear the attendance numbers, it becomes pretty clear what the problem is. In the feasibility study that accompanied the bonds in January of uh, 16, a total of 420,000 people were forecast to uh, attend the museum in 2019. When the 2019 budget itself, as opposed to the feasibility study, was adopted, the uh, museum said there would be 300,000 people in 2019, right? They, that, that was their expectation. But as of July 22nd of this year, admittance was only expected to be 96,000, or 32% of the 2019 budgeted amount, and less than one-fourth of what was in the feasibility study for the bonds. That's a big drop there. Yeah. All right. I've got one last question for you, Mr. Clark. Uh, what's happened to the price of the bonds? About a week after the December 2018 announcement uh, that stated that results would be materially short, there was a first trade on the bonds that was substantially below par. As the bad news has accumulated, the bonds have continued in general to trade downward, and the most recent trade has was at about 20% of par. Bondholders also have no lien on the facility, so their prospects are pretty dim unless museum operations substantially improve. 
Well, thank you very much, Greg, for your analyst snapshot. I just wanted to add also that um, there is a bondholder call scheduled for next week on this. They had, they had planned one for a couple weeks ago and pushed it back, but now on, on October 23rd, there's a bondholder call, so we'll probably learn some more in the latest financials after that. Good to know. Thanks. Because I, I noticed they had been a little bit late uh, from what they from when they said the call would be, so this is good news. Yeah. Is the bondholder call just to give the latest update of what's going on, Keelan, or? Yeah, it's going to be that they're going to introduce the, the fund's new CF, uh, CEO and I think give an update on financials and then respond to bondholder questions. Okay, sounds very good. Well, obviously, I'm sure you'll be on the call for that. Yes, I will. All right. Well, again, thanks to Greg, Caitlin, and Maria, and thanks to our producer, Anthony Phillips. But most of all, again, thank you to our listeners who uh, listen uh, week after week to the Mini Lowdown. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.